Church, our text for today is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. Ephesians 1, verses 11 to 14. If you're using the Pew Bible uh, in front of you, that's on page 976. Page 976. Unless I mess it up again. Is it 976? Thumbs up from Adam Sievert. Thank you. And Adam, thank you for your umbrella service today. You and Sarah Beth, thank you very much. That was really kind of you guys. Let's read Ephesians 1, 11 to 14. Follow along with me and then we'll pray. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, your word says that we who are in Christ are richly blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Your word says that we have a rich inheritance that we have in some ways already received, but one day we will fully receive. Your word says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that inheritance. Lord, you say, and those of us in Christ have experienced this gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we know that by the power of your spirit, you move hearts, you change wills, you direct the course of people's lives. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do that now. Lord, I particularly am feeling tired and weary. So I pray that by the power of your spirit, you'd give me strength to preach Christ crucified, risen from the dead. Father, we trust you. We trust it according to your word that you will work. Soften, harden hearts today. Encourage the faint-hearted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church. We are in Ephesians, and Paul is beginning to speak to the church about the inheritance that Christians will receive. And in fact, already in some capacity have already received. The question we have for us this morning is, why does he want to know that this inheritance is guaranteed? That seems to be what he's doing in this portion of scripture in verses 11 to 14. Why does he want the Ephesian Christians, why does he want us to know that the inheritance is a guaranteed inheritance? John Newton, a British poet from the 17th or 19th century, Uh, He says this in explaining why it's important for the Christian to have confidence regarding their inheritance that they will receive in Christ. This is how Newton puts it. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate. And his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city. Which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining while. My carriage is broken. 
My carriage is broken. You see, the man griping about his carriage is short-sighted. He has a mile to go and he's going to receive a mansion with an immaculate garden. He's going to receive an entire estate. This is his inheritance. This is his estate and he's so close to it. It is guaranteed to be his. All he has to do is just press on a little further. A more fitting response for him if his carriage broke down would be, Oh, I guess my carriage broke down. Let me continue the rest of the way on foot. If he's so close to the inheritance to receiving it, he could go about smiling and singing and even skipping and galloping on his way to his inheritance that is his. And so, Warnell Road, those of us who are in Christ... Paul wants the Ephesian church and he wants us to know that we have an inheritance waiting for us. And not just that this inheritance is waiting, not just that it's kept in heaven for us, but that it is guaranteed for us, that we cannot lose it, that nothing can keep us from receiving it. And so in this passage, Christians are given confidence. Christians are given confidence. That this inheritance is ours and it's guaranteed. That's what he's doing. That's why you see in the beginning of verse 11, you see inheritance. And at the end, you have inheritance in verse 14. And sandwiched in between, all the Lord is doing is wanting to give you Christian confidence that this inheritance is yours in Christ. And to further see that, we're going to go through four reasons we can have confidence That this inheritance is ours. That's our outline for today. If you're a note taker, there's four points. The first one is the longest. So be prepared for that in your listening ears. The first one is the longest. And the first one is this. We can have confidence that our inheritance is ours because it is the purpose of God. It is the purpose of God. Look at verse 11 and 12 again. In him we've obtained an inheritance... And look at all these purposeful words here. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So it's his counsel. It's his purpose. He's predestined it. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. If you remember back in verse 3 when we started this series in Ephesians. Back in verse 3. It starts out like this. This long sentence, verses 3 to 14, is one sentence in the Greek. And it starts out like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, in the heavenly places. And what he's doing now, after verse 3, is he's going through all these various blessings that are in Christ. And he's not just merely doing it. He's actually praising God, exulting in God. As he's explaining to us all these blessings in Christ. And so he's going through these, uh, these blessings and he's making it very obvious that all of the blessings we have as Christians are not ours independent of Christ. In fact, they come in Christ and they come through Christ. So with your Bibles open so that you can see this more clearly. 
Notice how the language in him or in Christ or through Christ is repeated in these first 14 verses. So look at verse 1. To those who are faithful in Jesus Christ. Verse 3. He has blessed us in Christ. He chose us in him, in Christ. He predestined us through Jesus Christ. Verse 6. He has blessed us in the beloved. The beloved is Christ. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. His purpose has been set forth in Christ. Verse 10, all things are being united in Christ. Verses 11, 14 are carrying that same pattern. Verse 11, in him, that is in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, we were the first to hope in Christ. In him you, in him you heard the word of truth and believed in him. This is all about Jesus Christ and all about encouraging those who are in Jesus Christ. The purpose of God for the universe orbits around Jesus Christ. But it doesn't just orbit around Christ, it goes through him. All of God's purposes are actually funneled through Christ. That goes, they go around Christ, they point to Christ, and they go through Christ. Christ carries out the purposes of God. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Now this inheritance language might seem kind of surprising. Where did this come from? But if you go back to, to verse 5, look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. A son or child gets an inheritance. If something happens to me, tomorrow I go to glory. I'm singing with the saints as we just sang about in Hark I Hear the Harps Eternal. My kids, Brooklyn, Emery, Trey, Lachlan, and Will, they will get my inheritance. Now, unfortunately for them, there's not much there. <laughs> except for a ton of 1990s NBA basketball cards. Now, I have been keeping and collecting these boxes. We, you guys know we have moved from place to place. And we discard things left and right. There's a few things that for some reason or another I can't get rid of. And about three Tupperware boxes of cards are part of, these, are part of what I keep taking with me from place to place. My kids will get these 90s basketball cards and they will get some knickknacks that I've kept from childhood. But rest assured, if you want some of my inheritance, you're going to have to wait in line. Because I love my children more than I love you, dear church member. I love Brooklyn, Emery, Trey, Lachlan, and Will more than anyone else, Katie excluded. And so I love them so much that they get first dibs on my cards. And so if something happens to me, Trey, the girls probably don't care as much. But Trey, Lachlan, and Will will wait in line and there will be a plethora of Alonzo Morning cards and Larry Johnson cards and Christian Leitner cards. You see, they're getting excited thinking about it. There's other play, players like Michael Jordan or Carl Malone. But I collected Leitner and Morning. 
You see, his purpose, God's purpose is to intervene and provide this unshakable salvation for some people in this world. All are depraved. All are in need of God to be reconciled to him. And in God's kindness and his providence, he intercedes on everyone's path toward hell. And he chooses some people and gives them an inheritance. And that's what this word predestination means. This inheritance and this predestination is according to the purpose of him who works all things to the count, according to the counsel of his will. This is his purpose. And we have a variety of words that get at this similar point. God's purpose. God purposes all of these spiritual blessings. So if you look through verses 3 to 14, you see these words that describe his intentions or his plans, his purpose. You see will, his good pleasure, his counsel. You see his will again. Friends, God wants it to make God wants you to have a robust confidence because his purposes will come to pass. And so he uses the word will, which is a way to define that as his basic choosing of God or the inclination of God. And then further up, he uses the word good pleasure, which is his gladness in his plans. This makes God joyful. God loves establishing his plans. No one is making God do this. God is not under compulsion in his purposes. Then you see the word counsel there. Counsel means that God is wise. He is thoughtful. He's logical. He's not rash. He's not careless. He's not illogical in his purposes. And you see the word purpose there. God has intentions. He has aims. And the aims and the purposes of God will result in him being glorified. You see, his grand purpose in all this, as we see here in verses 11 and 12, in verse 12 particularly, his grand purpose in all this is that he gets the glory. That God gets the glory. And that's good news because if it were our purposes, if it were our aim, if it was our responsibility to keep this inheritance, you and I both know that the purposes would be less about God and God's glory and more about our own glory. And that's the basic problem of man. We want the glory for ourselves. We want to shine bright so that people look at us and give us praise and honor and adoration. And in God's plan, God says, no, no, no. All these things I am doing, beloved child, so that my name might be glorified. We are so easily, we so easily become people that want to look good in the eyes of others. We so easily become people that want to protect our image. And we'll do this at puzzling costs. And we do this in things that don't make sense. But friend, trust in God's purpose. God's purpose for the world to get his own glory through the praise of redeemed men and women. So if his purpose is his own glory, how does that come about? It says there in the text, it's his counsel of his will. And the counsel of his will is this mystery of Christ. I'm not going to dive into it here because at length it's explained in chapter 3. But if you turn over to chapter 3, verse 6. Again, we're getting a little bit behind the curtain. God is showing us what he's doing in this world. He's showing us his purpose. And he gets a little more specific here. 
In chapter 3, verse 6, Paul's explaining the mystery of Christ. And he's attributing the work of the Holy Spirit as the one who has revealed it to the apostles and the prophets. And then you hit verse 6 and you get a very clear explanation of what this mystery is. Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. Partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now flip over back to chapter 1. Back in our text in verses 11 and 12, Paul says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. And so if the rest of the letter in part is explaining what the mystery of Christ is, now we can ask really good questions about this text. What does he mean, the fir- those of us who are the first to hope in Christ? Who's first? Well, I think he's talking about those who are Jewish here. Those who are Jewish are the first to hope in Christ because they are the first to receive the promises of Christ, the promises of God. We'll get more into that, as I said, in chapter 3. But what's going on here is he's saying that Jews have a foretaste. They are the ones who are given the promises of Christ first. You can look at Romans chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17 to see this as well. For I am not ashamed of the gospel for the power of, Christ, uh, the power of God. For salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, and then what? And then for the Gentile. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's simply saying that I was aware of the Old Testament scriptures. I've been inundated with them from my youth. And so in God's providence, when Jews, when when the Messiah was explained that Jesus Christ is the Messiah... They were the first to receive him because they were the first to be waiting for these promises. Of course, not every Jew believed. Many didn't. But the ones who did understood it in a more fully rich way because they've been waiting for the Messiah according to the Old Testament scriptures. So that's what he's doing here, I think, in saying that those of us who are the first to hope in Christ. They were the first to hope and the first to hear and the first to believe. The main point of this text This portion here, this point I'm I'm bringing out is that God's purposes are guaranteed and God's purposes cannot be thwarted. He is our sovereign God who works all things. You see that there, all things according to the counsel of his will. All things are according to the counsel of his will. Even things you and I cannot understand. I love how R.C. Sproul puts it. And a somewhat famous passage saying about his, the maverick molecule. I'm sure several of you have heard this before. But R.C. Sproul puts it like this. Talking about the, all things working according to the counsel of God's will and God's sovereignty in all things. He says, I like to explain it this way. If there is one molecule in the universe running loose. Outside of the control of God's sovereignty. What I like to call one maverick molecule, then the practical implication for us as Christians is that we have no guarantee whatsoever that any future promise God has made to his people will come to pass. If we have one maverick rogue molecule running loose out there, we have no assurance whatsoever that this single molecule may not be the grain of sand in the machinery of God's eternal plan. It may be the thing that runs amok and makes it impossible, ultimately, for Christ to return to this planet. 
It may be the thing that destroys any hope for the consummation of the kingdom of God, leaving all those promises of God unfulfilled. There are no maverick molecules in a universe where God is sovereign. Friends, that's the theology that Paul is explaining to these persecuted, downtrodden Ephesian Christians. But if God is sovereign over all things, and God is sovereign over salvation, he also is sovereign over the means of salvation. That is how someone becomes saved. And that is most fundamentally, fundamentally through the proclamation of God and God's gospel. That's our second point there. God wants you to have confidence because he is in a guarantee that the Holy Spirit is ours now and will be in eternity because of the proclamation of God. So we got the promises of God, the proclamation of God. Look at verse 13. Now he's switching to Gentiles. These Gentile Ephesian Christians. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Church, here is the means by which one obtains the inheritance. It's so clear, isn't it? Someone preaches the gospel. That's the only way you can hear the gospel. Someone explains it to you, exhorts it to you, preaches the gospel. Someone preaches the gospel. Someone hears the gospel, the word, the message of truth. And then someone believes the gospel. You preach. Someone hears. Someone's given the gift of faith. Because someone preached it to them and then they are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You preach, you hear, believe, you're sealed. That's how all of us got our inheritance from our Heavenly Father. No one in this room became a Christian by any other means. How do you become a Christian? How has God sovereignly ordained it that you know him, that you have an inheritance? You hear the message of the gospel because someone preached the message of the gospel. And then the light bulb goes off. And you believe. And God makes that happen. And then God seals his Holy Spirit in you. As a guarantee for your faith. Romans ten seventeen puts it succinctly. He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Romans ten seventeen kind of does it in the opposite way of Ephesians 1, 13 here. If you're going to believe, you must hear. And if you're going to hear, someone must preach the message of Christ to you. So if you're not here a Christian, I am so glad you are here. I can't think of a better place for you to be saved than to be here and to hear the gospel of Christ. So let me make it very evident. What is the message of Christ? What is the word of Christ? How do you get this rich inheritance waiting in heaven for you? You must realize at least four things. At least four things. One is that God is big. God is holy. And God is sinless. That man has become, men have become sinners. We don't love living under the righteous rule of God. We are rebellious toward his rule. We have gone our own way. We have sinned against this holy God. Thirdly, in God's kindness, he's given us Jesus Christ, who is both man and God. And Jesus has become the propitiation, the atonement of our sins by when he was nailed on the cross. His blood was a pure blood, unlike your blood, unlike my blood. 
And so he was a perfect, complete sacrifice on the cross. So everyone who believes in him will be saved. And that's the fourth thing. You must respond to this news. You may not just hear this news because you just heard this news if you're not a Christian in this place. That does not save you. That does not give you the inheritance. But you must hear this news. That God is holy. That man is sinful. That Christ is both God and man. Is, and is not sinful. And is holy. But he became sin for us on the cross. You must hear that. And you must respond in repentance. Turning from your sin and in faith. And that's what the Bible teaches. So if you're not here a Christian. And you've heard that message for the first time. Or the hundredth time. Let me encourage you that today is a day of salvation. Do not wait any longer. Come to Jesus. Turn from your sins and trust in him. Talk to many of the brothers and sisters around here. They would love to give up whatever they're doing for lunchtime and spend the next 30 minutes in chatting with you about this glorious gospel message. And Christians, if this is the means that God used to save you, this is very simple stuff, but we can't, we can't depart from this. We must be telling ourselves this the rest of our lives. If God ordained the means by which you were saved, by which you gained this inheritance, by which he sealed you with the Holy Spirit, if you heard the gospel from maybe your parents when you were younger, maybe a camp counselor, maybe you heard it through at, from this pulpit, you heard the gospel and you believed the gospel because someone preached the gospel to you and God worked in your life, that's the same means by which your neighbor, by which your family member, by which your children, by which your grandparents and your parents will be saved. There is no other way for men and women to come to the acknowledgement that they are sinners in need of a savior. They might know they're sinners, but there's no rescue without preaching the name of Jesus. And so, dear Christian, have you been faithful this week to proclaim the gospel message that has a power to save? I know I haven't. I've been stuck in my own issues to not care about my neighbor who maybe has never heard this gospel news. So consider the the way that Charles Spurgeon, a staunch believer in the sovereignty and providence of God. This is what he says about sinners and our need to proclaim the gospel message to them. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Amen. So Ben and Emily, on your, on your way to Texas and Waco, don't fall into the trap that says, I'm too busy with law school or I'm too busy in residency or we need to first get our house in order. Then we can start inviting people over right away, right away. Invite people over, tell them who you are in Christ and explain the gospel to them. Let them know the most important thing about you is not that you're a doctor, Not that you are going to become a lawyer, but that you are found in Christ. And you have an inheritance that God has given you. And you have an inheritance that is more fully going to be yours in heaven. Start that out right away. 
I'm so encouraged by the many stories I hear. Just this past week, our sister Lindsay Parker shared the gospel with her neighbors. And she said it was a little bit frightening, but she was so glad she did. And they responded and they understood what she was saying. And guess what? They still love her. That doesn't always happen. But friends, we're not always, we don't always break relationships when we share the gospel. In my experience and from what I hear from, from, from fellow brothers and sisters, that happens a minority of the time. And even if it is, it is still worth it by sharing the gospel with them. And church, that's why we are uh, so encouraged by the min- several brothers and sisters who've come to Christ through the ministry of One on Road. I was considering just our brother John Ogilvie and uh, Lorna came to faith before John. But they kept coming, hearing, understanding that the promises of Christ the promises of God were fulfilled in Christ. I remember, I believe it was Nathan. Nathan and I were at his kitchen table one time just imploring him. And you could tell that, brother John, that John, not a brother at the time, he wanted to give his life to Christ, but he didn't quite want to give his life to Christ. And so we kept preaching to him, kept praying for him, and by the grace of God, God saved him. Friends, people gain this inheritance through the proclamation of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying here. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you can look in the book of Acts. You can see how many people came to Christ in Ephesus through the proclamation of the gospel. That's why we're so glad to send brothers and sisters to hard parts of the world that have very little gospel light in Central Asia and in South Asia. Because without the proclamation of the gospel, without someone hearing the gospel, they cannot receive the gospel. You see our instructions? It's very simple. We've got this inheritance and now we're stewards of the inheritance. And now we go out and we send people and we share this glorious gospel news. Well, thirdly, our third confidence that this inheritance is guaranteed for us is the promise of God. So we have the purpose of God. Yes, they all start with P. The purpose of God, the proclamation of God, and the promise of God. Look in verse, the end of verse 13 and 14. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So the Holy Spirit is the seal or the guarantee of our inheritance. I can't remember if I said it earlier, but our inheritance is all the spiritual blessings that he's talking about in, uh, in verse 3. And he's gone through them all, and now he's, sharing how, now he's sharing just how confident we can be that these will be ours. In fact, they're ours now. And so to be sealed is a sign of authorization or of, um, hold on, let me say that again. To be sealed is a sign of authorization of authenticity. To be sealed is to know that um, you are marked off. You've been stamped in a way. So I I borrowed an Isaiah commentary from uh, Jeff Chang. And I have two Isaiah commentaries that I I get them confused often. I couldn't remember which one was his and which one was mine. So I knew to look in the front of the book. And on the very first page was this, um, what is it called? Embosser? Yes. Was Jeff's names with an embossed. Not embassy, because that doesn't make sense. But 
The page was lifted up out of the page because Jeff's name was stamped on it in a way. And big letters that said GC and said uh, in the, the, from the library of Jeffrey Chang. You see, that book was his because it was set apart to be his. It was sealed with his name. The only way to get rid of the seal of Jeff's name would be to rip the page out of the book. Now, the good news for us in Christ is that we, when we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, we cannot be unsealed. We cannot be ripped out of the book of life. God has placed the Holy Spirit within us and God is the only one who could take the Holy Spirit out. And God says he would never do that. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit and God keeps his promises. So we are sealed in the Holy Spirit. In Christ now and forevermore. And for further confirmation, Paul continues in verse 14. That this is a guaranteed because the promised Holy Spirit is written. You see that there? The promised Holy Spirit. And that word promise actually is a noun there. So it could read, and some versions have this, the Holy Spirit of promise. That's how guaranteed this deal is for us in Christ. It's been guaranteed, or another way to say guaranteed, there's been a down payment on your life, Christian. So if you ever bought a house, what do you have to do at the front end, front end of buying a house? You have to pay a lot of money up front, right? To guarantee it. You have to make a down payment on that house. And that's what the apostle is saying here. Is that if you've been given the Holy Spirit, that's your down payment, your guarantee. That God's going to carry you all the way to the end. In the end, you're going to receive all the spiritual blessings in their fullness. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22 Speaks of it like this. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his, his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So Christian, God wants you to know something over and over again. Is he has given you the spirit and the spirit is a guarantee that he will carry you on through the end. And that, that estate, that mansion, that marvelous garden, all the spiritual blessings in Christ will be yours. First uh, Peter says they are kept in heaven for you. So what is this promised Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus will do a little biblical theology here. I don't know that you're going to be able to write all these down, but I'll say them to you a little slowly. So we're going to work our way backwards to see just the promise of the Holy Spirit so that you can be more confident in the guarantee of the Spirit. Luke 24, 49 says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, says, I am going to send you the promised Spirit. Of the, my prom, I'm, gonna, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. And then in Acts 1-4, we see this carried out. Acts 1-4 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. So Jesus said it's going to happen. Later on, Jesus said, I'm going to send it. And then if you read Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of that. And Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of the prophecy from Joel. Joel chapter, 20, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. So Joel 2, 28, 29 says this. 
And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirits on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Well, Joel's a further prophecy of what's prophesied in Ezekiel eleven nineteen to 20. So Ezekiel eleven nineteen and 20. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Isaiah 44 verse 3 says this about the promise of the Holy Spirit. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Zechariah 12.10 also prophesies about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over first, firstborn. Go. Do yourself a favor and look at Zechariah 12.10 at lunch today. It is a fascinating verse, a Trinitarian verse. But you see this over and over again. And then 1 Peter picks this up again. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God wants you to be so confident that he saved you, he sealed you, and that you are his now and forevermore. That's what he's getting at. And he wants you to know that because life is hard. Life is difficult. And so he says that you are sealed and marked off. Friends, this is a beautiful work of our triune God. God the Father established us in Christ and now he seals us in the Holy Spirit. Christian, your inheritance is not in balance here. It is guaranteed. The Holy Spirit is our down payment. The Holy Spirit is our mortgage. The house is ours. We're just waiting to step into and acquire it. Nothing can falter this. Our God does what he says. Our inheritance cannot be lost and our inheritance cannot be stolen. I remember uh, when we used to live in Turkey, we had been married for uh, maybe four years, I think, when our first year there, four or five years And Katie had two nice, apart from her wedding ring, two nice pieces of jewelry. They're both necklaces, one which my mom gave her and one which I gave her. One was a pearl necklace for my mom and the other one was, um, I thought it was a diamond necklace, but it was only $100. So we got it from Jared's gallery of jewelry, but I was thinking about that. But whatever, at the time, I got it on our first, our our one-year anniversary And when you are poor and in seminary and working all kinds of part-time jobs just to make it uh, amen for some of you, just to to get by. 
$100 is a lot of money. And so I bought this for, for, uh, uh, for her on our one-year anniversary, and it was more sentimental at the time. There was some element of diamonds in those rocks, I'm sure. But we had a house helper come in to help us with language and to help us, uh, to help Katie learn how to, uh, to cook Turkish food. And she also wanted to clean our house for extra money. So we let her do that. Her name was Gulten. Well, over months and months, we realized, you know, we keep missing things. Like, where's that shirt we just bought? Or where's that, that doll, that, that jasmine doll that uh, the girls had? And then one, one day before Gulten came over, we were, we were in our kitchen, we were just, or in our bathroom, just making sure we started to be suspicious of different people. We're like, someone might be taking stuff from us, and it might be Gulten. And so uh, that day we looked, we made sure all of our jewelry was there. And then um, later that day, Gulten was there, and I went into the bathroom, and I noticed that the jewelry was gone. The only two valuable pieces of jewelry that Katie had apart from her wedding ring. Well, Gulten was still in our house at this point. But the weird thing about that day is she had one of her good friends come and visit her into our house. And we're still new to Turkey. We don't know if this is normal. We call our friend Galen. We're like, Galen, is this normal? And she said, no, that is very abnormal. Something's going on there. And so her friend had already left. We, as best we could in our broken Turkish, kind of cornered Gulten and said, hey, we're missing these necklaces. And they are very important to us. And she says, I don't have them. And she opened up her purse and showed, or emptied out her pockets. And so either they were somewhere else, we weren't going we to keep searching. Or they were handed off to her friend. That was an inheritance that Katie and I had talked about. One of those necklaces was going to go to Brooklyn. And the other necklace was going to go to Emory. I don't know if you knew that, girls. Sorry. (laughs) But to have something that was valuable and sentimental to be taken from you, you just feel violated. I don't know if you've ever been stolen from before, but it just feels so wrong. Like, that's my stuff. I had purposes and intentions with those necklaces. And you and your selfishness took them from us. And so when something is taken from you that is rightfully yours, it's a strange feeling. You see, the world might take things from you, but the world can never take your inheritance from you. In Christ, you are sealed and marked off because of God's plan. And he's given you confidence in that by the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's been given by the ancient of days, brought about by the Son of Man, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit given to you. And so, Christian, if you've seen any change in your life, if you've seen any fruit of the Spirit evidence in your life, think back to the time that you confessed your sins and you gave your life to Christ. If you feel like you're in some kind of valley or ditch, maybe your faith is just kind of bland right now. That doesn't mean that God has taken his Holy Spirit from you. Realize that. Press into Christ. Trust his promises. Well, fourthly, we see that God wants to give us, pro- God wants to give us pro- um, confidence because in that we are to praise God. So the purposes of God, the proclamation of God, the promise of God, and now the praise of God. At the very end there, a handful of words, verse 14, to the praise of his glory. This is the point of it all. This is the point of 
the earth, the point of you, the point of our redemption, the point of it all is that God would be glorified through the praise of the redeemed. God is getting his glory through the praise of those he redeems. This is the third time this phrase is mentioned. Look in verse 6. We've been adopted to the praise of his glorious grace. And in verse 11, he says that the Jewish people coming to faith are coming to faith to the praise of his glory. And now he's saying to the Gentiles, to both Jews and Gentiles, that everyone is being grafted in through the blood of the cross. And that our inheritance is secured to the praise of his glory. Church, all of this is to the praise of our mighty King Jesus. To the praise of our Heavenly Father through the power of the Spirit. We talked about this a few sermons ago and several of you mentioned it to me. I thought it would be appropriate to read again. If this idea of God's self-exaltation, of God planning and purposing all of this for his glory, if that strikes you as odd or weird, listen to what... C.S. Lewis, the author of Chronicles of Narnia, says about this in his own revelation about God after his own praise. Lewis used to to read passages like this and, and think it was like a vain woman who wants compliments. That's how he used to view God. But then he says this in his revelation. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or giving honor. I'd never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, here it is, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's appointed consummation. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable. What we delight to do. What indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. Just think about that. I love looking at a groom's face when his bride walks down the aisle. You know, he's either trying to hold back tears. I remember Nick, Nick do it. Nick and Brian, you guys made all kinds of funny faces. Connor Stahl when I was marrying you. You're either trying to hold back tears. You got a huge smile on your face. Because you want to burst at the seams and say, there's my bride. Lewis continues, he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's the appointed consummation. It's not out of compliments that the lovers say this, but it's out of delight and joy. And so God's plan for you, dear Christian, as we close, is that you would be so delighted that God has redeemed you and brought you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son That you would overflow with praise and that he would get the glory from this praise. And that's what he's doing. And so Paul is saying, be comforted in this. Have confidence in this. And he's saying, come get involved in this plan. Enjoy this. And so we opened up asking the question, why does God want us to know our inheritance is is insured? Why does God want to 
Why does God want you to know that your inheritance is guaranteed? Because a life lived in this world with the expectation of blessing in the next is a life that shines the glory of God through joyful praise of God. See, I need to know this because life is hard. And if we're aware of this, we can say with the apostle in Romans 8, what can man do to me? So I'll close with what Paul says, a fuller explaining of this theology in in Romans chapter 8. I'll close and then we'll pray. Let me read this and we'll pray. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That is God's chosen. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, our triune God, we praise you that we are blood bought by Christ. We praise you, O oh God, that we have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit on us, that we are sealed in him. Give us that confidence to help us carry on and persevere in our faith. Oh Lord, we pray that we would have this joyful confidence. Increase our confidence as we sing to you now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.